Well, howdy y'all. Welcome back to Once Upon a Time in Texas. This is your host, Michael Mitchell, and this is episode number 45. I had no idea when I started this endeavor that I'd really get into this many episodes. Uh, People seem to enjoy them because y'all keep listening to them. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate that greatly. So uh, yeah, episode number 45. This is kind of an interesting one. And as is usual, it's just something that I randomly saw and I thought, well, that's kind of cool and then expanded on it. So uh, anyway, before I get into that too much, you know, Thanksgiving is over. Christmas season is in full swing, and I'm absolutely thrilled that Hallmark Christmas movies are now on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I did read uh, somewhere recently that after years of research and numerous writers, countless hours spent, that Hallmark may actually be coming out with a second plot for all of their movies. That would be, God, so nice. Um, yeah, my wife loves those Christmas movies. But who knows, maybe their uh, second plot will come out this year. I sure haven't seen it. But uh, we can all hope for 2024, I guess. If uh, anybody that listens to this works for Hallmark, <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I like a few of your movies, but holy crap, there's like 96,000, and they all have the same kind of idea. Anyway, (laughs) and my wife loves them all, and they're on all the time. Anyway, I do love Christmas, though. I'm not a Grinch. I I love Christmas. I love giving. Uh, I'm not a big guy on receiving. I mean, I'm not saying that I don't like to get gifts, but... You know, I mean, for me, it's more about my family, my kiddos, making sure they have a good time. So, you know, I hope you guys are gearing up to do the the same thing, same stuff that we are, having a good time, getting together with family, and making those memories. Have you ever looked at a town or a place name and wondered where on earth they came up with a name like that? So, I do that fairly often. And strangely enough, or I guess appropriately enough, I tend to look them up. I kind of want to see what interesting history is behind the name or where it came from. And oftentimes I'm not disappointed. Ooh, excuse me. Got a hiccup there. Oftentimes I'm not disappointed. So I guess come with me this week and explore a few of these place names and maybe learn a little history along the way. Before we do this, of course, I want to thank our sponsors, me and American Mortgage Company. That's right. I know there are tons of people moving to and in Texas and Oklahoma. And I know a lot of y'all out there on the old interwebs do too. So let me help them out. Like I've told y'all before, I'm an independent mortgage loan originator. And uh, yeah, big difference is uh, I don't get paid unless we do loans. I don't have an office that I go to every day and I don't have a ton of overhead that I have to pay for. Um, I work directly with the secondary wholesale uh, market 
to help you guys find the best rates, the best deals, um, basically the best of everything about buying a house. I will say that it is uh, difficult in this business because frankly, as most of y'all can fathom, nobody really wants what I'm selling. <laughs> Pretty much everybody just wants the house. They don't want the mortgage and the payment, <laughs> which I get it. I don't want a mortgage or a payment on my house either. And I've already paid it off once. And then we did a loan and did some work to it. Now we're paying it off again. So <laughs> I get it, folks. I get it. Interest rates are high. Housing prices are still a little high. But man, you know, I'm just telling you, if you find the house of your dreams, if you've got it in your heart that, you know what, by God, it is ready to buy a house or upgrade or downgrade, give me a call. Let me know. I would love to work with you if you are in Texas or Oklahoma or moving to either of those two states. And uh, even if you're not, <clears throat> if you're moving to states other than those two, still give me a call because I have friends that I have met through this business kind of all over the country uh, that are independents just like me and I can point you in the right direction. So you know what? If you're going to do this, if you're going to get a house and you got to get a mortgage, why not work? with someone who is at least a little entertaining and works pretty hard to make that process faster, cheaper, and easier. Someone like me. So if you know someone moving to Texas or Oklahoma, send them over my way. Send them over to my website at themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. And as always, remember, I sell dreams, not mortgages. <laughs> so there you go. So a few weeks ago, I'm talking to somebody, uh, somebody fairly new in town, I guess. And uh, we were talking about some of the town names around Wichita Falls. And, you know, just talking about like Electra was named after, you know, Electra um, Wagner. And so, you know, they owned the Wilbarger Ranch. And so the whole town is named after her. Vernon, I'm not sure where Vernon came from. I probably need to dig that up um you know wichita falls was named because we had uh, the wichita native american tribe who spent a lot of time here and we had original waterfalls till the dam was built and then a flood came blew the dam out and washed out our waterfalls and then sometime in the 80s uh somebody came up with the great idea that we should rebuild our falls and so uh we we can turn our waterfalls on and off. They're, they're right here as you come into town from the north. If you're driving south, you'll see the Wichita Falls. And they're awesome. They're impressive. And then you realize that they're all artificial. and uh, But they're still cool. But I just think it's funny. Uh, when we were in Oregon seeing my sister, we went to a place called Multnomah Falls in Portland, absolutely gorgeous and she said it's impressive isn't it and i said not as impressive as wichita falls and she looked at me and she gave me this stupid look because multnomah falls is significantly taller uh, and bigger and she said these are way bigger way taller and i said yeah but can you know the city of portland turn them on and off at their leisure <laughs> and the answer was no so uh anyway so that's kind of, you know, Wichita Falls and some of the other places, but a few other towns that 
piqued this person's interest enough. For the life of me, I can't remember who it was. Um, towns like Quana, Texas, Nocona, Texas, came into the conversation. And like I said, I forget who was talking to me about it, but they said, you know, those are kind of different sounding names, you know. I wonder where they came from. You know, are they Native American? And I told them, well, they are Native American, and they're actually named after people. And this person, I do remember, kind of looked at me a little confused. And then uh, I really threw him for a loop, and I said, well, actually, no, Kona and Kwana are father and son. And uh, that just blew their minds. So we're going to go ahead and hit on a couple of towns today. But the first one, in all honesty, I think it's like Traces of Texas Facebook group or something. Anyway, there's a, a Facebook group <clears throat> where somebody posts the Texas historical signs. You know, on... On this date in, you know, whatever, 1883, you know, somebody stopped. Somebody of importance stopped here and took a dump. I don't know. You know, they've got all these signs all over the place. And some of them are pretty cool. Some of them are like, wow, you guys were stretching. And so, anyway, this Facebook post comes up. And it has a photo of the historical marker at this ghost town's location. And the town's name is called... Baby head. Yeah. I mean, that's... That caught my attention. That's... I'm telling you, folks, that's the kind of crap that gets me. Baby head. And some places it's spelled baby, B-A-B-Y, space head. And some of them, they're mashed together and just baby head. <clears throat> so, this is an odd-sounding town name, obviously. And I was, of course, sucked into the post... And I had to read about it, and it did not disappoint. So I found a, you know, I found a little bit of history there, which seems to be, I don't know, kind of accurate. But I found a way better extended history on a place called 101highlandlakes.com. Uh, I didn't look the rest of the website, you know, full disclosure. So I don't know what 101 Highland Lakes is dot com is it looked like it was stories about an area of you know of texas but you know as the other histories kind of really seemed to be lacking this history about it had a little uh little more history and a little pizzazz of course which i like so here's what it had to say and this comes direct from the website the men raced towards the large hill, knowing a child's life lay in the balance. The men, settlers from north of Llano, Texas, pursued a group of raiding Indians. The Indians, thought to be Comanche, had taken the little girl during the raid. Native Americans often kidnapped white children, keeping them as their own and raising them as part of their tribe. The men raced along, hoping to rescue the girl. Up ahead, the party of Indians, some on foot and some on horseback, tried to outdistance the settlers. They climbed a hill north of Llano and realized that, at the pace they were going, they probably wouldn't escape their pursuers. Somewhere on a rocky ledge among the trees and outcroppings, the Indians realized the child was holding them back. So according to oral histories... They did the unthinkable. They murdered the girl 
and left her head on a pole leaning against a rock for the settlers to find. Imagine the horror of the men as they climbed that hill and saw the scene. While not necessarily a ghostly haunt, that hill referred to as Babyhead Mountain and the nearby community of Babyhead conjure up the terrifying event from the 1800s that's part of the Highland Lakes haunted past. But this is just one account of how the Babyhead community, located about 15 miles north of Lano, got its name. Though most of the details are similar, the year and the people involved are a bit different in each telling. In one account, the perpetrators are very different than the ones in the accepted narrative. So here's the baby head, the baby head mystery. Most, if not all, of the accounts behind the name come from oral histories. And if you've ever played gossip with a group of people, you know that oral histories can, uh, can get really screwed up really fast. But here's what else the website had to say. According to the historical marker placed at Babyhead Cemetery, the above incident happened in the 1850s, with one account putting it squarely in 1855. And it's been pretty much accepted for years. Then, in 1983, John E. Connor's memoir, A Great While Ago, came out. Connor, who was about 98 years old when he finished his memoirs and spent his boyhood in Lano County, recounted a different take on the baby head named Genesis. According to Connor, the incident actually occurred in 1873, and it might have involved the group of Indians who fought settlers south of Lano on Pack Saddle Mountain. In his account, Connor said the Indians raided the area and kidnapped Bill Buster's daughter. The Indians raced off with the child, who, depending on the version, was an infant or as old as four years old. The settlers pursued the, the Indians, but it was a few days later, after possibly being alerted by circling vultures, that they recovered the child's remains, with only her head distinguishable. Now... Some do point out that Mr. Connor, who was almost 100 years old when he penned his memoirs, could have been suffering from a faulty memory. His description of the location was also questioned because it was a bit farther away from what became Babyhead Community. Still, longtime Lano County historian uh, Aline Elliott corroborated Connor's version in published reports many decades ago. Her husband, Sidney, was 17 years old in 1873 and working on a Lano County ranch, and his stories of that incident fall in line with Connors. Elliot pointed out that the community in question didn't become known as Babyhead until the 1870s. She even identified the child as Mary Elizabeth in one published story. Considering the horrible scene the pursuers uncovered in the 1850s, is it possible they did not refer to the area and the mountain as Babyhead so soon after the painful event because it would have been a grisly reminder of what happened? Could the name 
have only gained traction years later when people started describing the nearby mountain as where the baby's head was found. Or maybe these were two entirely different incidents. In the histories of settlers' westward expansion into Indian country, both sides committed atrocities against the other, including the killing, the killing of children on both sides, which brings us to another possible scenario in which the killers weren't Native American at all. So here's some of the facts. So the babyhead community prospered in the late 1870s. In 1879, a post office was established as settlers and farmers and businesses pressed into the area. By the 1900s, Babyhead was a thriving community with a general store, blacksmith shop, cotton gin, churches, and even a school. And it did go by Babyhead, though many people in the area spelled it Babyhead all smushed together. However, like many towns that dotted the Texas landscape in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Babyhead succumbed to progress, as it often does. With its proximity to Lano, a larger town to the south, the improvements in transportation, people started moving away. In 1918, the post office closed. The cotton gin hung on until sometime in the 20s, as land use shifted from farming and cotton to predominantly ranching. The store closed around 1940, with the school shuttering in 1944, as students began attending class in Lano. Today, a few ranches and homes can be found in the area, but the main reminder of the community is the cemetery, which still bears the name Babyhead Cemetery, and of course, nearby Babyhead Mountain. But let's step back to the mystery. In the early 1990s, local county historian Dale Fry came across another story of how the community got its name. A Lano resident recounted a tale to Fry that was originally passed down by the man's great-great-grandfather. So according to his version, the child's death happened around 1868. The killers, according to Webster, who passed it down to his son, who then told it to Fry's source, were not Indians at all, but wealthy and powerful local ranchers. The story goes that the men approached Webster, who was well thought of in the Cherokee, Texas community, just north of what became Babyhead Community, about a plan to murder a homesteading family. The idea, as the story goes, was that the men would kill the family to get the attention of the U.S. government in hopes of having a cavalry unit or other military protection assigned to the area. The government had already dismantled a number of forts in Texas because they felt Native American threats had declined to the point that locals could handle them on their own. The men allegedly involved in the plot believed Indian tax attacks were still a problem and warranted military intervention. Another reason, and probably just as interesting, is the ranchers believed killing the family and laying the blame on Indians would prevent more homesteaders from flocking to the area and laying claim to good ranching land. If this version is true, then the men only killed the child. Webster shared the story only after learning of the girl's death a few years later. He was never involved in the plot to the, you know, or the murder, according to Fry's source. As for the results, the U.S. government didn't send troops, and the killing didn't seem to curb settlers' interest in the area. <clears throat> the only thing that happened is the men involved managed to keep it covered up. 
Some think it might have been due to their power and influence. But the child is the only constant in all of the stories surrounding Babyhead. And any connection between her and the cemetery are simply location because she's likely not even buried there. The oldest documented grave in the cemetery is that of another child who died in 1884. While the mystery around Babyhead and who's responsible for the girl's death remains, one thing is true. A young child suffered a needless death and never got the opportunity to see her life fulfilled. So kind of a little interesting. And of course, there's always mystery around it. Why not? So now let's jump to another fascinating story. We're going to uh, explore the captivating history of Cynthia Ann Parker and her remarkable son, Quanah Parker, which a lot of people know. So I pieced together some of this from different sources, mostly Wikipedia, to be honest. And, you know, from what I can remember from the book Empire of the Summer Moon, which is a fantastic read. If y'all haven't read Empire of the Summer Moon, you guys are missing out. And so it's amazing. So our story begins in the 1870s. If you don't know the story of this, I'm going to recount it some for you. And we're going to relate it to the towns that I talked about earlier. So the Parker family was among the pioneers who settled in Texas seeking a new life on the rugged frontier. Cynthia Ann Parker was born to Silas Mercer Parker and Lucinda Parker in Crawford County, Illinois. Her birth date is uncertain. According to the 1870 census of Anderson County, Texas, she was born in 1824 or 25. Originally, her middle name was Anna, but over the years it was changed to Anne. When she was 9 or 10 years old, her grandfather, John Parker, was recruited to settle his family in north central Texas. He was to establish a settlement fortified against Comanche raids, which had been devastating the American colonization of Texas and northern Mexico. The Parker family, its extended kin, and surrounding families established fortified blockhouses and a central citadel Nader, Nader, later named Fort Parker on the headwaters of the Navasota River in what is now Limestone County. On May 19, 1836, a force of from 100 to 600 Native American warriors, I love how they put such a big number, could have been five Native American warriors, but they would say, oh, estimated 100 to 600. I guess we don't really know. So anyway, 100 to 600 Native American warriors composed of Comanche and Kiowa and Kinchai allies attacked the community. John Parker and his men did not comprehend the military prowess of the Comanche and were unprepared for the ferocity and speed of the Indian warriors. They fought a rear guard action to protect some of the escaping women and children, but soon the settlers retreated to the fort. The Native Americans attacked the fort quickly and quickly overpowered the outnumbered defenders. The Comanche took Cynthia Ann Parker, who was a young girl at the time, and five other captives with them back to Comanche territory. The Texans quickly mounted a rescue force during the Texans' pursuit of the Native Americans, a teenage girl did escape. And over a period of years, the Comanche released other captives as their family paid ransoms. But Cynthia Ann Parker was adopted by a Comanche family and became thoroughly assimilated with the tribe. 
She is estimated to have been nine years old or so when she was taken. So Cynthia Ann ends up spending 24 years living among the Comanches and became assimilated completely with the tribe. She was adopted by the uh, Tenowish, uh, by a Tenowish Comanche couple who raised her as their own daughter. So she became Comanche in really every sense of the word, and she marries a guy named Petanokona. And he was a chief and is the namesake of Nokona, Texas. And really, Nokona, if you guys don't know, is about 45 miles east of Wichita Falls. Great town. They've got some cool stuff going on over there. Um, yeah, so check it out. So she marries Petanokona. Uh, and he's a chief. So they enjoyed a happy marriage. And as a tribute to his great affection for her, he never took another wife, even though it was very traditional for chieftains to have several wives during that time. He loved her, thought she was wonderful, never took another wife. Or maybe she was just a lot to handle. I, I don't know. But the great affection thing sounds awesome. I like that. Probably she was just full of piss and vinegar and he thought, geez, I can't handle two or three wives. One's enough. <laughs> so anyway, they end up having three children. So we've got Nokona, Texas, named after Petta Nokona, a chief. And then his first son is Quana who becomes the last free Comanche chief and the namesake of Quana, Texas, which is about 90 miles northwest of Wichita Falls. And then they had a kid named Pecos, or also noted as a Pecan, and then a daughter named Topsana, which is kind of translated to prairie flower. So in December 1860, after years of searching at the behest of Parker's father and various scouts, a band of Texas Rangers led by Lawrence Sullivan Ross discovered a band of Comanche deep in the heart of Comancheria that was rumored to hold an American captive. In a surprise raid, the Rangers attacked the group of Comanche in the Battle of the Pease River, which the Pease River is out by Quanah, Texas. After limited fighting, the Comanche attempted to flee. Ranger Ross and several of his men pursued the man who had appeared as the leader and who was fleeing alongside a woman rider. As Ross and his men neared, she held a child over her head. The men did not shoot, but instead surrounded and stopped her. Ross continued to follow the chief, eventually shooting him three times. Although he fell off his horse, he was still alive and refused to surrender. Ross's cook, Antonio Martinez, identified the man as Petanokona and killed him there on the spot. So the rangers begin questioning the woman that was fleeing with Nokona and other surviving Comanche. And in broken English, she identified herself and her family name. Her information matched what Ross knew of captives taken in the 1836 Fort Parker Massacre. So Ross sent Parker and her daughter to Camp Cooper and notified her uncle, Colonel Isaac Parker, that she had been returned. So he took her to his home in Birdville. 
Parker's return to her birth family captured the country's imagination. Like, this was a huge deal, guys. In 1861, the Texas legislator granted her legislature, sorry, granted her a square league of land. It's about 4,400 acres and an annual pension of $100 for the next five years. They appointed her cousin, Isaac Duke Parker, and Benjamin F. Parker as her legal guardians. However, Cynthia Ann Parker never adjusted to her new surroundings. Although white and physically part of the community, she was uncomfortable with the attention that she received. Like everybody, I've read accounts of this, Everybody wanted to look at her. Everybody wanted to talk to her, all this kind of stuff. And so she was just really uncomfortable with the attention. Her brother, Silas Jr., was appointed her guardian in 1862 and took her to his home in Van Zandt County. And then uh, when he entered the Confederate Army, you know, for the Civil War, she went to live with her sister, Orlena Parker O'Quinn. Some said that she missed her sons and worried about them. Another thing is that she was kind of seen as a bit of a sideshow or an oddity of sorts. So no one could really fathom the fact that she had more or less become Comanche and had given up her whiteness, I guess, for lack of better words. So one of the most famous photographs out, out there of her is of her breastfeeding her daughter, uh, Top Santa, Prairie Flower. This photo is really considered racy at the time, and uh, lots of people really thought that it showed how savage and uncultured she had become during her captivity. Because although most everything is covered, you can see, you know, part of her breast, and I mean, she's obviously sitting there breastfeeding, which is just... I mean, even now, people flip out about breastfeeding. So think about this in 1863 or 4, and this photograph getting passed around. Like, it's a big deal. Very racy. In 1864, Cynthia Ann's daughter, Topsanna, Prairie Flower, catches influenza and ends up dying of pneumonia. So Cynthia Ann is stricken with grief. Um, you know added to the grief of missing her sons and the Comanche way of life. Um, she started to uh, refuse food and water. Um, she held out for a long time, I guess. She ended up dying in 1871 at the O'Quinn home and was buried in Foster Cemetery on County Road 478 in Anderson County near Pointer, Texas. So, in 1910, Cynthia Ann Parker's son, Quana, moved her remains and had them reinterred in Post Oak Mission Cemetery near Cache, Oklahoma, which basically, you know, after he um, surrendered and everything, that's where he lived. And then when he died in February 1911, he was buried next to her. So their bodies were moved in 1957 to the Fort Sill Post Cemetery at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. Uh, if I remember right, I think it was mostly due to like grave robbers and stuff. So I'm not sure. Um, but I kind of remember there being something about that. And I remember something about Quanah Parker's skull 
actually having been taken and maybe had by the Skull and Bones Society. I don't know. I just kind of remember hearing something about that, but I haven't looked into it much. <clears throat> so, in 1965, the state of Texas had Prairie Flower's body moved from her grave in uh, Edom, Van Zant County, Texas, to be reinterred near her mother and her brother, Quana. Another interesting note, kind of in pop culture history, is if you've ever seen the movie Dances with Wolves, the lady character in that, the main lady character, is named Stands with a Fist. And that is actually modeled after Cynthia Ann Parker, as in the movie, her family is killed by Indians when she is a young girl, and she is taken in by the tribe and assimilated into their way of life. Uh, the screenwriter Michael Blake has acknowledged that the character was written based on accounts that he'd read about Cynthia Ann Parker, which is kind of cool. So we're getting a little long in this, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk for just a minute about Quanah Parker. So uh, Quanah Parker, born in the late 1840s, raised in the Comanche culture, and grew up to become a respected leader and warrior within his tribe. Um, his life would become intertwined with basically the changing landscape of the American West. And I think that's why, you know, he is really so notable, is a lot of people link Quanah Parker, you know, surrendering, basically, to kind of the taming of the American Wild West frontier. And it's kind of true. It all kind of coincides, you know. Railroads are making their way. The buffalo are just about extinct. And basically, the last of the wild and savage Indians have surrendered and are being tamed. You know, to kind of sum it up, that's kind of the way people looked at it. So... As the American frontier expands, conflicts between the Native American tribes and settlers escalated. So Quanah Parker emerges as this key figure during this very tumultuous period. You got to remember, a lot of the settlers moving west didn't like the Native Americans. And the Native Americans, rightly so, didn't really like the settlers. Um, basically, we were taken over their land. And so anyway, Quanah Parker ends up advocating a lot for his people's rights and fighting to protect Comanche lands and their way of life. And so, and he's done a good job of it. I mean, he did a good job of it. The Comanche tribe still does pretty well, from my understanding, in Oklahoma, as a lot of the tribes do. So in the late 1800s, you kind of see the end of the Indian Wars. Quanah Parker, you know, ultimately surrenders to the U.S. authorities in 1875. He becomes one of the last Comanche leaders to do so. And uh, like I said, he works and advocates for Native American rights um, and played really a very crucial, crucial role in the transition to Native Americans being on reservations. So he worked very hard, and there's lots of stuff out there about him, to bridge the gap between Native American and white cultures. He did try very hard to do so. He advocated for education and land rights for his people. So his legacy really endures to this day. It, it was such a crucial role that he played, really, in 
preserving the Comanche culture and history that it really paved the way for a better future, I guess, in a sense. <clears throat> Let me rephrase that. So it did pave the way for a better future for Native Americans under those circumstances. Okay. Um, this was kind of a turning point from eradicating Native Americans to let's get them on, you know, land reservations, let's educate them, let's assimilate them into our culture and society. And uh, basically, it was a rapidly changing world at that point. And rather than just trying to get rid of the Native American culture altogether, Quanta Parker was somebody that really helped build, uh, build a bridge and, you know, bridge that gap and tried to get his people and other Native American tribes to, I guess, look at the positives of what was happening. Um, and yeah, basically, uh, the work he did still has a huge impact on Native American affairs to this day. So, yeah, if you get a chance, read Empire of the Summer Moon. Um, Flowers of the Killer Moon is a movie that's come out. I think that's mostly about the Osage which I did live up in Hominy, Oklahoma, outside of the Osage Reservation for a time when I was younger. And uh, so, yeah, I encourage y'all, I mean, go check that out. The history is amazing. And remember, it is history, folks. It's not something we want to erase, whether you agree with how the uh, Native Americans were handled or not. It's still history. And it's still interesting. So there you go. Three Texas Place names and a little bit of history to boot. So what do y'all think? Let me know what other kind of weird or off-the-beaten-path interesting Texas history you'd like to hear about. Again, I want to thank our sponsors, me and American Mortgage Company. Keep in mind, if you know someone moving to or in Texas or Oklahoma, send them my way. Send them over to themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. And remember, I sell dreams not mortgages. So also, like I always do, go check out my other Facebook page that I hope to be doing something with in January called Your Bucket List, Y-O-U-R Bucket List. Um, the whole idea is just making the world a better place by helping people mark things off their bucket list, which I think would be pretty cool. This is not a money thing. This is not a fundraising thing. This is merely about a group of people making connections to help someone mark something off their bucket list. It's just a cool idea, something that popped in my head, and I couldn't let it go. So we're still growing that group, and I'm still trying to figure out how I want to manage that, because that's going to take a lot of time and effort. So uh, got some other big announcements coming up, you know, hopefully with your bucket list. Um, once upon a time in Texas, I believe, if y'all like it, I'm going to continue for as long as I can. And since I'm licensed in Oklahoma now, I don't know. I may throw a little bit of Oklahoma stuff in there too. Who knows? So thank you all for tuning in to Once Upon a Time in Texas. As a reminder, my website is themichaelmitchell.com, T-H-E, michaelmitchell.com. Thank you all again. As always, remember, the stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. 
Y'all have a great week.